There was a gap of about 15 minutes between the fire being discovered and the explosion, which threw burning timber and wreckage of all kinds onto other sheds. Welcome to 100 Years, 100 Objects, stories from the collections of Lancaster City Museums. My name is Rachel Roberts and I'm the Collections Registrar for Lancaster City Museums. In this series, we're celebrating 100 years of our museums by looking in depth at 100 of our favourite objects and the stories that they can tell. Today's object is a vivid reminder of the power of a local tragedy. It's the remains of one dreadful night, preserved to keep people's memories of the event alive. Today's object is a piece of shrapnel from the Whiteland explosion. The shrapnel is a substantial piece of metal, which was probably part of a munition shell. It was blasted from the site of the Whiteland Projectile Filling Factory when the site suffered a fire and multiple explosions during World War I. Because of its violent creation, the metal is an irregular shape, roughly 20 centimetres high, with jagged edges. At the top can be seen the remains of the channels where another piece would have screwed in, giving us a hint that this could originally have been the body of a shell. The shrapnel has been cut or flattened at one end and attached to a square metal base. Some words have been stamped by hand into the base, which read Whiteland Explosion, October 1st, 1917. We spoke to Tim Churchill to find out more about the history of the site and the tragedy that occurred that night in October 1917. We started by talking about the factory, how it came to be, and what sort of activities took place on the site. In response to the shell shortage of 1915, some 17 shell filling factories were set up in the UK. The low-lying farm and marshland between Lancaster and Morecambe was selected as one site and named White Lund after the old settlement at its easternmost corner. Construction of the many wooden buildings, over 125, drainage ditches and flood walls started in November 1915 and the factory was into production filling shells by July 1916. Mixes of TNT and ammonium nitrate had to be dried and then milled, with the resulting amatol conveyed to press houses, where the workers filled shells. The filled shells were painted, moved to a storage shed, and then taken away by rail. A companion shell factory was built over the same period at Caton Road in Lancaster to provide the shell cases, and the two factories were connected by the Midland Railway and rails laid round the factory site to move materials around. All engines were fireless steam locomotives that would fill with steam at the site power station when they ran low. By September 1917, there were 4,621 employees, of whom 2,976, that is 64%, were women. People came from all over the country and Ireland to work there, because the pay was relatively good. At first, a lot of men did not like having to work alongside women, but it became a force for the emancipation of women. It was potentially very dangerous work, not only due to the possibility of explosions and fire. Toxic jaundice from TNT exposure killed at least nine people who worked there, as happened to more than a hundred others throughout the country. 
the TNT would turn their skin yellow, giving them the nickname Canaries. Smoking, matches and iron objects were banned on site. If you worked in the danger area where the shell filling took place, you first entered a change house and changed your domestic clothing for work clothes and rubber shoes. Workers were subject to searches on entering the site and also when in the change houses, despite which some were still caught smoking on site. People found with cigarette or matches were fined or imprisoned. There were over 40 prosecutions at White Lund in the first year of operation. One man was caught using nails to hold his trousers up. Tim went on to explain how the early stages of the fire developed on the night of the 1st of October 1917. At 6pm, night shift began for the 2,000 workers, and at 10pm there was a break for supper. The foreman of the magazines had just returned to his post in the danger zone after his supper passing Unit 6C on his way, when the policeman, Gilbert Johnson, whom he had just relieved, ran back to say there was a fire in that building. Unit 6C was a two-storey building of wood, and on the upstairs floor was a large pile of TNT to be melted and used in the mixer. The ground floor was packed with finished shells. Johnson sent a message to the fire brigade, while Taylor coupled up a hose and tried to put out the fire. Tommy Tattersall came to help. He then went to the upstairs portion of the melt house and endeavoured to put the fire out with extinguishers, but was unsuccessful. When the explosion occurred, Tommy was blown through the roof but survived. He was awarded the Silver Edward Medal. There was a gap of about 15 minutes between the fire being discovered and the blast of the explosion, The explosion threw burning timber, machinery and wreckage of all kinds onto other sheds. Most buildings were of wood. With the fire now visible, sprinklers were turned on in sheds and their connecting runways and firemen and workers started tackling the spreading fires. Some workers panicked and ran to the main gates to escape, which at this time were closed. Early Tuesday, a car was sent for the general manager for which the gate was opened and the workers rushed out. By this time the phone lines were dead, so they were unable to contact the fire brigades of nearby towns. Explosions were heard as far away as Nelson and Burnley, as more shells exploded. The site electricity failed, taking out the electric water pump, leaving only the petrol-powered one working. There was an emergency water supply that came from Lancaster, but when they tried to use it, The pressure was too low to be of use. Explosions continued throughout the night, with the chief constable in Blackpool hearing and feeling a violent explosion and then offering Lancaster police support from his fire and ambulance staff. Thomas Q, an engine driver, and Abraham Clark Graham, a shunter, were both off duty, but hearing the alarm and knowing there were trucks loaded with shells not far from a magazine, came into the factory to move them out of the danger area. Together, they moved 49 trucks away from the magazine, uncoupling some as they were already blazing. They were both awarded the Silver Edward Medal. Mary Agnes Wilkinson was a telephonist that was called to duty at the telephone exchange on Cable Street in Lancaster. She rode her bike there, but was twice blown off by explosions. Having reached the exchange, 
she stayed at her post relaying messages for 24 hours. She was later awarded the Medal of the Order of the British Empire. At this point, around an hour since the initial alarm, knowledge of events was spreading far and wide thanks to the violence of the explosions, and help was finally coming to the site. Vast numbers of Morecambe's residents, hearing and seeing the explosions, ran to the beaches for shelter. By 11pm, Lancaster and Morecambe Fire Brigade had arrived. The site was becoming highly dangerous, and many sheltered under the railway bridge. The powerhouse workers remained in place, and 20 minutes later, William Disbury, the pump manager, was blown through a window by one of the explosions. He survived to be awarded the OBE. 4.15am, a car was sent to Lancaster, to get railway locomotives to remove wagons of field shells. Two came, but could not reach them. By dawn, Preston Fire Brigade arrived and worked with Lancaster Fire Brigade in flooding the magazines. There was still low pressure in the water pipe from Lancaster, and it was thought the pipe was broken. By 2.40pm, Blackpool and Manchester Fire Brigades arrived and tackled the fires round the main gate they started using the water from ditches and ponds on the site to supplement the one working pump. 3.10pm, Vickers fire engine arrived. Being steam-powered, it took four hours to travel from Barrow, as it had to stop every 20 minutes to replenish its water supply. It tackled burning wagons filled with live shells. By Tuesday midnight, Fire and explosions were concentrated in melt, stemming and transit sheds. At 4am on Wednesday, Salford Fire Engine arrived after an accident on the way. At 4.15am, there was the last big explosion which knocked down several firemen. After this, all firefighters withdrew until 5.45am when they resumed work. By daylight, all fires were under control or out, and local people returned home. At 8am, Winston Churchill, then the Minister of Munitions, sent a message thanking everyone for their selfless service. At 2.30pm, the Mayor of Lancaster admitted shutting off water to the site, as he thought water was running to waste, and he restored its water supply. By evening, all fires were out, but being kept cool. It then rained heavily. By Thursday morning, the site was considered safe, and by midday, all fire brigades except Lancaster had left the site. The official death toll given in 1919 was ten people, of which five were firemen and one unknown. There was an inquest into the cause of the fire and explosions afterwards, but no specific cause was found so it was declared an accident. Tim has also researched some of the personal experiences of those living in Lancaster and Morecambe at the time of the fire. John Spaulding heard the explosions whilst having supper in Morecambe. He went to investigate and saw White Lund was on fire. He said it was a holocaust, a light from end to end. He saw one large explosion 
drop a ninety-pound shell fragment into the sea just beyond the end of the central pier. Alice Thornborough lived at Ovangle Farm, where a chunk of shell came through the kitchen ceiling. The family fled to Lancaster for shelter. John Taylor was six on the 1st of October, and he was woken up by the explosions. His mother kept a large piece of shell under her sink that had landed in their back street in Hesham. All the windows in his school were broken when he went to school. They had a young lodger, Maggie, who worked at White Lund, and she came home all muddy after crawling through the ditches. Richard Irving lived on Willow Lane in Lancaster and was getting ready for bed when the bedroom window lit up and he went to look. A big bang blew him back, but without breaking the window. His father went down Loon Road, where he met people fording the river, who told him the factory had blown up. Richard set off for work at Gillow's next morning, and on Market Street saw a looter being pulled out of Leighton Jeweller's broken window by a policeman. When he reached Gillow's, the only person there was the foreman, who sent him home. On his way back, he passed fire brigades speeding down Great John Street. Anne Harrington lived in Morecambe and was ten. At midnight on the 1st of October, she was wakened by her parents when they realised the factory was on fire. They fled to the seafront while blasts shattered shop windows and glass flew all around them. When they returned home, they found every ceiling down and all the window frames at the rear of the house blown in, but with the glass unbroken. Agnes Stockdale lived on Gregson Road near Williamson's Park in Lancaster. A policeman told them to head for the hills, so they ran to Langthwaite Farm, where they were taken in. Shells hissed over their heads as they passed the cemetery. There was a large explosion, which they felt as a thud in the back. They were made very welcome at the farm, but shortly afterwards, many more people arrived wanting shelter. So what happened to the site after the explosion? Was it ever used again? The Times reported after the war that the Office of Works had begun clearing the debris from the site and plans were made for rebuilding the factory, but never proceeded with. By 1919, the remaining buildings of the filling factory were being used to dismantle shells to render them safe. But then, at about 3pm on the 14th of January 1920, in a building where shells were being dismantled, there was a large explosion. The side of the shed was blown out, and all nine men working there were instantly killed. This building was at the rear of the general offices, where the men were also reclaiming copper bands from shells, and two electricians were repairing a light. The supervisor did not know whether any of the men had nails in their boots. Once again, the inquest came to no conclusion as to the cause, deciding it was an accident. By the beginning of March 1920, men were being laid off in thirties and forties a week, and it was reported that no more shells were being brought to White Lund for breaking down. Morecambe Council wanted the place closed, as they thought it would inhibit holidaymakers from visiting, and the workers wanted it kept open for employment. Lancaster Council, when asked to support Morecambe Council, refused to take sides. The place wound to a close. Morecambe Road and Broadway were built to provide work for the unemployed, 
and Sam Hodgson of Morecambe set up in business hauling rubble from White Lund's buildings and the concrete from their foundations to use as filling in these new roads. Most of the TNT, or Amatol, removed from the shells was removed by wagon for dumping at sea via Glasson Dock. Robert Gardner's shipping business at Lancaster's St George's Quay and Glasson Dock was awarded the contract for dumping munitions waste at sea, and they bought two hopper barges for this purpose, one being the depositor and the other the dealer. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of 100 Years, 100 Objects. There are lots more episodes to listen to where we look at everything from painted plaster to posh portraits.